I got three chapters. I thought it was very unfair until I looked at Joanne's uh, passage. Uh, and I'm so thankful I was not given the second message because I thought uh, chapter two was really difficult. I want to publicly affirm uh, Joanne for a job splendidly done last week. Uh, I reviewed my notes <laughs> and I, I really thought that I would not have approached it the way she did and I thought it was, it was so well done. Uh, I thought my passage is not as difficult because the sovereignty of God and there's so many things written about the sovereignty of God. Uh, but I want to tell you that uh, the sermon has taken uh, a direction that is completely different from what I imagined it would be. And it's very important, and I pray that you will understand the intent of the message, the gist of the message, because if you don't, uh, you could end up being very discouraged at the end of my sermon. So let's pray that God will grant us understanding. Uh, let me just... Uh, well, we're talking about the sovereignty of God, right? Ah, okay. Sovereignty comes from a Latin word, super, and it conveys the idea of uh, supremacy in capabilities, uh, superiority in uh, capacity, uh, excellence, perfection. Um, so I want to give you my definition of sovereignty. This is my definition. Uh, the sovereignty of God means that God can do anything He wants to do at any time He wishes, in any way He desires, for any purpose He determines, and in His absolute discretion and at His sole disposal, He can use any part of His creation, animate or inanimate, to accomplish His perfect will. Just take a look at this and see whether you agree. Of course, it's just my definition. You can come up with your own definition. Now, the book of Esther is important. The book of Esther Nehemiah is important. And it is significant because these books demonstrate that God is in control. So for the topic of sovereignty of God, uh, studying Esther and Nehemiah is very good. You know, the theme of the sovereignty of God uh, uh, is in these books, and let me explain why, because, uh, well, actually, Shiming explained why in this first sermon, that uh, there are two important prophecies that have to come to pass. It is very difficult for these prophecies to come to pass. First of all, uh, was Jeremiah's prophecy made 70 years, about 70 years before, Esther chapter 1, the exilic period must end on the 70th year. Uh, that you can find in the passages I mentioned uh, right up here. And the second prophecy that must be fulfilled was the one given by Isaiah 150 years ago. Uh, it is specifically mentioned in Isaiah that a man called Cyprus would liberate the Jews. And so in Esther chapter 1, both prophecies were fulfilled. This, I, I want to emphasize that these events are extremely difficult to be fulfilled. Uh, let, me, let me expand on this. Now, King Cyrus, who issued the decree, was already in power for 20 years before uh, Esther chapter 1. 
20 years before, in uh, BC 559, Cyrus was king of an extensive Persian empire, but he only overthrew Babylon in uh, BC 539, 20 years later. So God's timetable got to be perfect. It cannot happen too soon. It cannot happen too late. The transfer of power must happen at the right time. And so Cyprus overthrew Babylon in BC 539, and he made the proclamation the year after that, BC 538. And then uh, the Jews took two years to prepare themselves, and then they went back, and then they set up the altar. Then the time was right. 70 years was up. You know, this, this is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God in deliverance, in restoration, in moving people, you know, the Assyrians were so great, nobody thought that the Assyrians could be, uh, be toppled. And then the Babylonians came. The Babylonians were so powerful, nobody thought that they could. Uh, we would see the demise of the, Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire so soon. And then the Persian Empire came, being perfect sovereignty of God. And then we read Ezra chapter 4, which is what I'm supposed to do. And I thought, wow, it's easy. We just continue the theme of sovereignty of God. And then this is what I see. Opposition and persecution in Ezra chapter 4. How did they do it? News quickly spread that the Jews were building a temple, uh, the house of God, and the enemies of the Lord tried to derail this project. How? By infiltration. The enemies uh, used deceit to say, well, let us help you to build this temple of the Lord. And they approach the rubber bell and they say that, uh, well, we worship the same God. Uh, we want to have a part in this work. Of course, uh, Zerubbabel was very wise not to allow that to happen because if, if people of all religions and all types had a part in the work, then they want to have a say in the work and have a say in everything. All right, so it couldn't happen. Then, intimidation. The Canaanites inhabitants had discouraged and frightened the Jews in order to stop them from uh, the rebuilding work. When that didn't work, litigation. They bribe officials to do anything that they can do to frustrate the plans in the courts of the king. And when that didn't work, accusation. They started to slander the Jews. Uh, they wrote to the king uh, that these, these Jews are uh, rebellious lawbreakers. So infiltration, intimidation, litigation, accusation. Now, um, this is not to be, this is not unexpected, of course we know, right? That when there is renewed devotion, there could be fresh persecution. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, 1 Peter uh, 2.21 says this, that in fact, anyone who, lives, who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. And in 1 Peter 2.21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow an example. So that is not, not unexpected. And then, something else happened. All right, let, let me sh show you uh, uh, these dates. Uh. Uh, in my study, I found that these dates were important. The temple foundation was laid in 536. So it was uh, 70 years after the first deportation of the Jews by, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Then all work halted the following year in BC 535. No further work was done on the temple for the next 15 years. The temple work only resumed in BC 520, 15 years later. And then 
the temple was completed in BC 515, about 70 and a half years after the destruction of the temple in 586. Uh, why am I giving you these dates? Um, I want to ask a question. Okay. Was Artaxerxes responsible for the 15 years interruption in the temple rebuilding book? Let's, let's turn to Ezra now, chapter 4. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. Now, what do you see there? Uh, uh, the intimidation, the litigation, the accusation... Uh, I mentioned in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, 4, and 5. All right? Then in verse 6, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, uh, then there were letters exchanged. And look at verse 23. As soon as a copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum, uh, and Shimshai, the secretary, and the associates, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and they compelled them to, by force to stop. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, when I studied this, I was very confused because my understanding of history is that Xerxes and other Xerxes came much later. So I checked all my commentaries and all the books I could find and this is what I found. The work at the temple was not stopped by the decree of Artaxerxes. It cannot happen that way because the temple work was halted in 535. Work resumed in 520 during the reign of Darius. Artaxerxes, which is Queen Esther's husband, came into the picture in 485 to 465. This exchange of letters between the officials and Artaxerxes was in 464 BC. 70 years later. So Xerxes came into the picture 50 years later, after chapter 4, and Artaxerxes came into the picture 70 years later, after the events recorded in chapter 4. So, my conclusion is this. This exchange of letters did, was not the cause for the cessation of the work at the temple. I will tell you why Ezra chose to put this part of history that should be, you know, should appear in chapter 7 of Ezra. Why was it put here? I will explain to you later. Okay, suffice to say, this is my conclusion that the temple work was not disrupted because of Artaxerxes' decree. Well, if we want to understand what happened, uh, we have to look at the book of Haggai and Zechariah. Because uh, look at chapter Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Read with me. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edu, prophesied to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judah in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. Then Jerusalem, son, uh, Zerubbabel, son of 
uh, Shetel, and Joshua, son of uh, Jozadak, uh, yeah, set to work to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and the prophets of the Lord were with them, supporting them. Now, uh, since we know uh, that uh, Haggai and Zechariah ministered in uh, the crucial period that we are considering today, we want to know what they had to say. There must be some other additional information. Now we have to turn to Haggai. Turn to Haggai. Well, actually, I've, I've given you the, the relevant passages which I'm considering, which is Haggai chapter 1. And look at Haggai chapter 1. This is, this is what Haggai prophesied to the people there. Verse 6. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but have never enough. You drink, but have never have your fill. You put on your clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in the purse with holes in it. Haggai chapter 1 verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Haggai chapter 1 verse 10 and verse 11. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth is crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grains, your new wine, uh, the olive oil, everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labours of your hands. Let me summarise, okay? What God did to the people of Israel was this. Their earnings vanished away. They found no fulfilment in their work. They found no satisfaction in the fruits of their labour. There was no lasting enjoyment in their possessions. There was a drought. The crops failed. There was low productivity. Uh, this is of God, you know. Now, uh, I, I want to bring you back to Joanne's message last week. In, in Joanne's message last week, she said that the Jews had a choice whether they wanted to return or not. Uh, and so, I, I think she said that there were more reasons for the people to remain in Babylon than to leave Babylon. I mean, this is after 70 years. Canaan is ground zero. Do you know that the, the Second World War ended in 1945? This is the 66th, 67th year. Uh, it's about this time, uh, since Second World War until now. This is about a time when the, the decree of uh, Darius was issued. And then, it's a long time. If they were to go back, they would be going back to ground zero. So only 49,897 Jews responded to Cyrus's extraordinary decree. The returnees, uh, suggested by Joanne, they were the faithful ones. They were the dedicated ones and God recognised that. That's why their numbers were carefully recorded. Uh, they were acknowledged. It, it took a great risk for them to leave they made great sacrifices to uproot themselves from Babylon. Let me just bring you, uh, give an illustration how difficult it is, all right? Let's say that the Chinese government, the People's Republic of China, China, uh, issue a decree, not a decree, just make an invitation, a generous invitation that all you overseas Chinese, you are welcome back to Zhu Guo and make your contribution. Your PR status is guaranteed and you can own property. Come back and help us to 
built China. Uh, I wonder whether uh, we would be very enthusiastic to return. Not that China is not developed. Uh, China's development is, is phenomenal. But this is... I, I think China, Singapore is better. It is comfortable. We are earning... We have better pay. Uh, the opportunities are great. And, you know, to leave family, friends, property, businesses, opportunities is very difficult, all right? Uh, let's be realistic that to go back is difficult. Uprooting is difficult. And to go back to what? Go back to hard work. They had to build the temple. They had to start everything from zero. But for these 49,897 people, they went back with high hopes and great expectations. And what did they get? I tell you what they got. They got opposition. They got intimidation. They got accusation. They got litigation. They faced trials. They encountered troubles. They endured drop. They suffered from low productivity. They had crop failure. Hey, come on, man. We are the zealots. We are the people who responded. We are the faithful and we return to this. So God's work, I suggest to you, okay, God's work stopped at the temple, not because of the decree of Artaxerxes, because he was supposed to come 70 years later, but because they were disillusioned with God, they were discouraged by their circumstances, they were dispirited. And so, uh, how do I know this well? Um, I think that uh, I'm not wrong to read from Malachi because, you see, there, are, there were three uh, prophets who ministered in this period, okay? okay? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Uh, uh, these three prophets ministered to the, uh, uh, in the post-exilic period. Malachi appeared later, but uh, what Malachi wrote here reflected the attitude of the people. They had many downs and ups and downs and ups, and this is what the people said, okay? The people, the, the, uh, the returnees said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out all His requirements and doing, going about like mourners before the Lord God Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed, la. they are better to be like this. La. Certainly, the evildoer prosper. And even, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So what's the point? I have to get it. So there were some kind of the, the feelings of the people then. You know, they were discouraged and dispirited and they were disillusioned. No, I'm sure that they never intended to abandon the temple building. Uh, but they are saying, it is not time. It is not time to build the temple. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, uh, is, is your thumb still at Haggai uh, chapter 1, verse 2? Okay. And this is what the all Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time is not yet come to build the Lord's house. Um, no, this is not our country. We don't even have an army. This is not the time. Our, this is not the time because our numbers are small. 50,000 only. And you know, the feelings of hostility is great. It is not time. Let us settle down first. 
Let us establish ourselves in the community. Let us first gain credibility in the community. First, let us provide for our young families. First, let us stabilize the farms. These are new farms. Uh, let us work on the farms and, and get them started. Oh, we have new business relationship with the people around. Let us first establish the businesses. It is not yet time. Let us first strengthen our financial security. Now, these are very hard times. And in hard times, people are concerned with survival. You know, I was just checking through. Uh, one day, I was reviewing my sermon notes and I, I read again uh, what Vincent preached about on the 12th of August uh, this year. And he, he made this remark in one of the, in his sermon that the fear of loss of something you have is greater than the desire of gain of something you don't have. So I highlighted it and I pondered upon it. The fear of loss of something you have is greater than the desire of the gain of something you do not yet have. So, uh, so this is one reason why people have, are so kiasu. And I think that uh, these people were fearful. They have cares and concern, trials and troubles, fears and frustration, leading to disillusionment and discouragement. So they, they were fighting for survival. They were concerned with survival. The political climate was hostile. Uh, so, I mean, it is unwise. It is unwise to offend the people of the land. Let's not do it now. Let's halt the temple work for now. The economic climate is very bad. Uh, perhaps it is not time for us to be uh, having this high expenditure mega project. It is not time now. So the temple work was stalled for 15 years because of fears, disillusionment, discouragement, and disobedience. Uh, but of course, God has a different take, right? God has a different take on the situation. In Haggai uh, chapter 1, verse 9, this is God's take on it. You expected much, but it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? God asked them. It's a rhetoric question and declares a lot. Because my house, which remains in ruin, it is because of my house, which remains in ruin, and each of you is busy with your own house. This is God's take on the situation. God sent the troubles. Um, at this point in time, I want to um, just pause a while and talk about a seminar which I attended last weekend for, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and there, were, uh, there are a few among us who attended the seminar. Sherwin, right? Uh, Joseph, Guan Ming, Belinda, myself, and I don't know who else attended the IDMC conference uh, uh, two weeks ago, just last week. Okay, Pastor Edmund Chan, uh, Pastor Edmund Chan taught us uh, on the will of God, and he said that uh, we are to memorize these four theological statements. And uh, I think I'm, they, he made us repeat this about 40 times, I think. Uh, God's will is totally sovereign, he said, gloriously redemptive, sometimes puzzling, but always perfect. God's will is totally sovereign, gloriously redemptive, 
sometimes puzzling, but always perfect. Now, I, I realized that I, that I, we don't usually make the connection between the external circumstances of our lives and the internal condition of our hearts. We don't usually make that connection. We jump from 1 to C, uh, A to C. We skip B. Uh, so did the returnees uh, in Esther's day make the connection between their physical hardship and their spiritual condition? The answer is no. They didn't. In fact, uh, in Zechariah chapter 7, uh, verse 2 and 3, uh, they, they went to the prophet Zechariah and said, well, uh, they asked and they asked the prophet, oh, so should we continue to mourn and fast on the fifth month as we have done for all these many years? And they just go through motion uh, What's the point? Uh? Should, should we continue or not? Uh? I don't know what God is doing, you know. Uh, this, this is God's project. God stalled it. God, is, God has to remove it. I don't know what is happening. It's very puzzling. Uh, God, you have to deal with it. They did not make a connection. So, they're probably saying that God, the enemies of God is frustrating your project. It's hindering your work. The reason for this Troubles cannot be us. It can't be us. We are the zealots. We are the faithful. We are the, the 50,000 people who return. It can't be us. There must be another reason. So what does it mean? Uh, that God's will is gloriously redemptive. What does it mean? Let me suggest to you this. Huh? God's will is gloriously redemptive. It means that God... God's work in our lives is progressing. God's work in our life is continuing. God's work in our lives is purposeful. Uh, it's stated in Romans uh, 8.29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on until, to its completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, when, when we can accept that God's will is, is uh, totally uh, uh, sovereign and gloriously redemptive, we will see adversity in a very different light. When adversity or when our adversary appear in our lives, we want to understand it from God's perspective, right? We want to, uh, be, we want to be asking God, what are you doing in our lives? I believe that God is actively involved in, uh, in, in what I call child training, spiritual child training. Uh, this is why uh, these, these verses are given to us in Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one He loves. He chastens everyone He accepts as His son. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And lastly, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. God disciplined us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. So let me just say this, that when I say that God's will is gloriously redemptive, we understand that God is doing a continuing work a progressive work 
a purposeful work in our lives, and I will see my adversaries, I will see my adversities in a totally different light. I want to ask and understand, God, what are you doing in my life? Why is this happening? Is there a connection between my physical circumstances and my spiritual condition? I want to know. And uh, if, if your will is redemptive, maybe this hardship is imposed on me if, because it is necessary for my growth and sanctification. Because you are involved in my life. Now, uh, so, so take note of this. Uh, uh, th- this is, l- l- let me just give a, a recap at, at this time uh, before you lose me. This is what I'm trying to say. Okay? God's, God is sovereign in the works of deliverance. Ezra chapter 1, Ezra chapter 2. He can move heaven and earth to make things happen. Ezra chapter 4, 5, and 6. God is sovereign in the acts of discipline. Not just in the works of deliverance, but also in the acts of discipline. So God can cause, cause good circumstances to, uh, to advance us. He can cause bad circumstances to, uh, to stop us. He can call powerful people to help us. He can raise evil people to frustrate us. God can make our path easy and we can progress. God can cause our ways to be difficult and we can be hindered. God can remove obstacles to facilitate our work and God can place obstacles to impede our work. God can calm a storm. God can send a storm. This is the sovereignty of God. So He is involved in the works of deliverance and sovereign in the acts of discipline. We have to understand the sovereignty of God in this way, in the good and in the bad. And we must understand that God is gloriously redemptive. Otherwise, we cannot accept this. We'll jump from one, oh, you're sovereign, but your ways are very puzzling. I give up, God. I just gave up on you. I don't know what you're doing. We must not skip the second part, the second theological statement that God is gloriously redemptive. He is doing something. It is purposeful, progressive, continuing. Now, I want to give you two stories uh, of people in my life who do not, did not make the connection. They are still not making the connections. I have a very good friend of mine. Uh, I've worked with him before. And um, when he, when we parted ways, uh, uh, he went to, to do other jobs. Uh. The first job that he went to tremendous difficulty. We ministered to him. Many people helped him, uh, pulled strings and all that and, and then he got, uh, he moved on to another job. Same problem, extremely difficult uh, with the boss in the second job. Uh, we pulled string, got help, uh, talked to people who can help him. He moved on to the third job. The third job, extremely difficult time with the boss and I feel so sorry with, uh, for him because I've been mi- I continue to minister to him in that one decade. But every time that we sit down to talk and pray and we have counselling session and everybody who wanted to help him uh, did what we can, it's always about the problem of the boss for the past 12 years. And I understand that he's still having the problem with the bosses. Now, I, I know this man. He is very diligent and very hardworking, very responsible. Uh, 
uh, because I worked with him before. So uh, uh, every time he encountered a problem with the boss, he would work harder. He put in more work, longer hours to prove himself, to prove himself. But the, the problem is just not removed. And I think it's not for me to tell him that I think God is trying to tell you something. I, I just feel that just come back to the Lord. You have been far from the Lord. You are not seeking the Lord. You are not praying. Come back to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. That was all I could tell him. Uh, that, uh, but it's for him to seek the Lord to draw the lessons. But it never happened. Uh, and you see, we are very slow to make the connection between our uh, external circumstances and our spiritual internal condition. In fact, uh, I know of another brother whom uh, uh, we were ministering uh, to just a few years ago. Very well-paying job. He's paid better than I. But in financial difficulties, uh, so we had to intervene, we had to help and counsel. And then, uh, of course, before we helped, there had to be a meeting. And in the three-hour meeting, two or three-hour meeting, he just spoke and explained why the circumstances are so hard, why he had to quit this well-paying job. In that two or three hours, it was just about the boss. Nothing about himself. But uh, just uh, for those who also were listening to him, we could see that there was a connection between the spiritual life and what was happening. But it was very hard for us to just tell him. It, it, it may seem a bit judgmental. So we, we, we withheld. We, we were just, uh, you know, withholding our comments. Uh, so he quit his job and now he's in deeper financial problems to this day. We are very slow to make the connection. But we should. We should make the connection. We should try to make the connection um, if we believe that God's will is sovereign and that it is gloriously redemptive. Uh, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we were referring to Hebrews chapter 12 quite a bit just now, and I want you to look at this particular uh, two verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 says this, And have you, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of God's discipline. Do not lose heart when He rebukes you. There are two opposite improper reactions uh, when we face adversities. Uh, these are two possible uh, reactions and they are completely opposite and both are improper. First, of, first improper response is this. We make light of the Lord's discipline. What does it, make light? What does it mean to make light? Uh, make light can also mean we despise. Uh, we don't seek to understand what God is doing. Uh, we count it as, ah, it's just a common problem, lah. it's an office problem, yeah, people are always like that, lah, you know. And it's always other people's uh, 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 problem, your wife's problem, your mother-in-law's problem, the boss's problem. Uh, we always blame it on others. We make light of it. Or rather than seeing it as, as an experience that you can benefit from, we just despise it, make light of it. Uh, we despise the Lord's discipline when we fail to see the hand of God in it. So instead of asking God or acknowledging God that maybe God has a hand in this, uh, we, we just, uh, just endure it. 
Now, the second improper response is do not lose heart. And many people have lost heart. You know the, the example which I just gave you now about the, the friend I used to work with and then after that he left? Uh, he is no longer attending church. In fact, there is, I hear that he may have left the faith. Uh, we prayed and we prayed about his situation for, for the past 12 years and he had totally given up on God, so totally disillusioned. And, and this is another improper response. We fail to see that God is doing a good work. They only see that God is not intervening. It's so puzzling. You're sovereign and this is happening. God's ways are so puzzling and I give up. Do not lose heart. Take heed of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Do not lose heart when He rebukes you. Accept what the Bible says. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines those He loves. We got to hold on to this. Now, I got to be very, very careful here because I don't want you to go back discouraged or misunderstand my sermon. I am not saying that for every problem that surfaces in your life, you must quickly make a connection Problem means sin. What sin have I committed? If there's trouble, it's me. I'm not saying this. But what I am saying is this, that every expression of discipline has an intended purpose of conforming us to the image of God. Every expression of discipline has an intended end of conforming us to the image of God because God says so. Scripture says so, Romans 8, 28, 29, that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. You have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to conform to the image of His Son. And... Uh, what I'm saying is God is still in control and God can use these circumstances, whether you understand it or you don't understand it, uh, for our good. Uh, healing and deliverance will come in His time. God will lovingly deal with issues in our life, if there are issues in our lives, or God will decisively deal with our enemies if it is caused by our enemies and nothing to do with us. But God is in control, and God is active. Now, um, I think this is uh, it's, it's very important for us to understand this because uh, I, uh, what I'm, I'm suggesting to you is that just don't be too quick to dismiss uh, a difficult circumstance and say, ah, this is just a chance uh, circumstance, and everybody in the office suffer this, it's a lousy boss, that's why all of us suffer, it's nothing to do with me. Uh, don't be too quick to dismiss adverse, uh, adversities because uh, Scripture says this, that uh, Isaiah 45 verse 7, for example, says this, I form the light, I create darkness. I bring prosperity, I create disaster. I, the Lord, do these things. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who can speak? And, and it happens. If I, the Lord, has not decreed it, if it is not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come, when disaster comes, Amos 3, 6 says this, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord 
caused it? So, so how, how do we know? Right? It is very important that we know because our response, uh, we want to give the appropriate response. Uh, uh, I think it is wrong also to assume that there is sin whenever there's trouble because it's not necessarily the case. How then uh, can we know and properly respond to adversities? Haggai 1, chapter 1, verse 5 and 7 says this, Give careful thought to your ways. Twice it mentioned, give careful thought to your ways. Uh, so what I'm suggesting to you is this, we have to reflect when something difficult happens, when adversity comes, when there's an adversary in our lives, uh, when we are having trouble, sit down, pause, reflect. Are my troubles related to a specific sin? Now, Holy Spirit, I know, I know you will bring the connection, if there is a connection between my external circumstances and my internal condition. And if I'll ponder, and if nothing comes to mind, I will not uh, pull my hair and speculate that there must be something, there must be something. I, I won't do that. I will just submit. If it is spiritual warfare, I will fight a good fight. I will wage a, 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 a good warfare and I'll get people to, to battle with me uh, uh, and, and ask for deliverance. If it is the Lord's discipline, I will repent and submit to the Lord's discipline. If it is a trial that I must endure for my character development, I will patiently endure it. You see, the responses are also important, but in every situation, I believe that God is gloriously redemptive, that He can use the situation, He can remove the situation, He can put the situation. In His own time, He can remove it. But I want to respond appropriately and and Haggai say, give thoughts to your ways. I want to give you two stories of, of my life. And uh, I'm going to end quite soon. Uh, but these two examples of uh, how I've put this into practice. Uh, you know, um, my attitudes towards my, my legal opponents have been, uh, have been quite bad sometimes. Uh, I will look at my opponent and I will say, ah, okay, this is not a strong opponent. It should be easy. And uh, I, would, uh, I will conduct my matter confidently and think that I have an upper hand. And several times it happened like this. Uh, uh, from the negotiations and from the letters, I know that uh, they don't know the law. Uh, this is so sloppy. They forgot to claim this. And, oh, no problem. I just tell my client, we can settle at this level. You know, even though they just asked for this, we can cut it down some more. We can settle, I can handle him. And a few times it backfired. Uh, there was no settlement for some reason. And we went all the way for a hearing. Uh, I thought that my cross-examination was good. His re-examination was very weak. And then when, the, when it came uh, to the time for exchange of our written submissions, I thought I compared my submissions with my opponent's written submissions. Mine is so substantive, substantial, my cases, the law. And I, many, many times, I just feel so confident, you know. But several times, not just once, several times, when the result is uh, out and we are called uh, to the judge to receive the judgment, completely devastated. The judge will say, I accept the plaintiff's submissions. I reject the defendant's argument. Da, 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 da. I don't accept the defendant's cases. I accept the plaintiff. <laughs> Come on! What is happening? 
up, you know, and then it will happen again and I, I will have a rough patch. I would then go before the Lord. Lord, it is so unproductive. I want to give up on practice, you know, because the judges are, and they are not sound. I, I have no disillusion with the, the judicial system and justice, what justice. And then when I ponder and reflect, the Lord will not fail to a few times already because, you know, it has happened a few times. The Lord will just address my attitude. That Edwin, you, you despise your opponent, right? Maybe. You do despise your opponent. You look down on him. You are proud. And I have repented of that. And the next time when I meet the opponent again, I, I really try to, to help and to treat him respect and to be, you know, just deal with him as equals. In fact, as somebody whom I should respect. And a few times, the Lord then completely changed the situation, meaning that in the first uh, part of the hearing, it was bad when I repented. In the second part of the hearing, it was far better. I, I, I'm, I make the connection. I do not force and say there must be a connection, there must be a connection. But and I re- when I reflected and waited upon the Lord, the Spirit of God who is doing the work of redemption, who is very interested in child, uh, you know, uh, in just my, my, develop, my development, uh, He will make that connection for me so that I can repent and go back to Him. Now, uh, this, this other s- story is very recent. There was one when I, I had to go before uh, a deputy registrar. Uh, they're, they're like magistrates. Huh? Uh, uh, they hear applications before the main hearing. So I appeared before the registrar of an application and uh, uh, I appeared before him at about 11, 11, 15 because I had other matters to do when I appeared before him. The first thing I got was a, a scolding. Why are you so late? I apologize and after that, he gave me a very bad hearing. He refused my application. He said, well, is, is it in the SIC? I'm not going to deal with it. Okay, I will take out another SIC and I will do it all again. So I complained to my colleagues and I said, this, I don't know who, I never appeared before, I don't know who he is. And, well, I complained, but actually it's slander. Okay? I, just, I just went on and on. I took out the application and I found the application, hearing date. Lo and behold, the same registrar. Do you know how many registrars there are in the support of the cause? What are the chances of me having him two times in a row? I appeared before him. I got a scolding and I got a very bad hearing. I was so discouraged again, very disillusioned with the justice system. This guy has no judicial temperament. He should not be there. And I went on and on and on. And then I went before the Lord. God, what is happening? This is a rough patch. Two, three weeks of just bad hearings. And the Lord made the connection for me. The Lord addressed my pride again. Usually it's pride. And my slandering, my attitude. And I said, God, I'm, I'm just sorry. I I repent, it is wrong. Okay, I will, I'm turning back to you. I, I submit to your discipline. So I prepared for the hearing and the hearing uh, was fixed without papers and, and so I asked my, uh, my secretary, just check who is hearing my case. This same deputy registrar again, three times in a row. And I, I really was so dispirited and discouraged. I, I shared at the, the lawyer's prayer meeting, please, Pray for me. I'm going to have a bad hearing. 
I have no favor with this registrar. I don't know whether I should be handling this case. Will anybody handle this case? Of course, I handled the case. Who will handle my case, right? So I handled the case. You know, on the first day of the hearing, God surprised me. He was a totally different man. He was polite. He was extremely patient with the witness. He was extremely helpful to counsel. He promised that, you know, he gave us good advice. He promised to give us the notes of evidence. Don't worry, I'll make it available to you. He spoke in the tone that was totally... I don't know whether because many people complained to him and the SGJ then, then uh, called him up. I, I don't know, but I just know that by the time it came for my hearing, he was a totally different man. God can send the storm. God can calm the storm. And he's sovereignly in control in the good times, in the bad times. He is, if I make the connection, and I must make a connection, God, what is happening? Are you trying to tell me something? Your will is perfect. You're totally in control, but you are gloriously redemptive. If there is a connection, I want to make the connection. It may be puzzling, but your will is perfect. And so in these two instances, I benefited tremendously and I, I, I want to speak to Jana Han and the rest who are going to be lawyers soon. If you want to be a successful litigator, be humble. It's easier if you're humble before God. And uh, the other thing that we must do is, of course, respond. Did they respond? Did the, uh, under the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, did the people respond? They did respond. Uh, go back to, uh, to Ezra and you will see their response. Okay, uh, Esther chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, uh, after the prophecy, uh, Zechariah chapter 5, verse 2, then Zerubbabel, son of Shantel and Joshua, set to work, set to work to rebuild the house of the Lord. And in another passage, uh, Haggai chapter 1, verse 12, uh, passage because at the same time, same prophet, same ministry. Haggai chapter 1 verse 12, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God sent him. They recognized, you see, uh, uh, that this was the message of God, this is the man of God, and the people feared the Lord. Did they respond? They did. So what happened after the people responded? They went back to the work, and then something happened. The people responded and then came another serious setback. And this serious challenge is more, than, more serious than all the other challenges because it involved the governor. Tetanel was the governor of Trans-Euphrates, a very powerful man, and Tetanel went to see who authorized you to build, uh, rebuild the temple and to finish it. And he also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this temple, this building? Uh, uh, Ezra chapter 5, uh, verse four, uh, 4 and 5. A very serious challenge. And uh, look at verse 5. But the eyes of the Lord their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped 
this time they had bonus. Instead of fear, they said, well, Lord God of Israel asked us to do it. We'll continue doing it. And, and then the governor had then got to write to uh, the king and make inquiries. And uh, this is a very important part, uh, the, the, the rest of chapter 5, because the governor, Tatanel, requested the king to search the Babylonian archives for documents, uh, but it was not found in Babylon. Uh, instead, the scroll was found in Ekbatana, 300 miles northeast of Babylon in the capital of Media. Why, Why that? Because uh, the scroll was in Ekbatana. Cyrus spent summer there when he issued the, the decree. So it was found in another place and they found it. They found it and when, uh, when Darius read the decree, found the records, Darius acknowledged that God had caused his name to dwell in Jerusalem and he gave specific instructions for uh, Tatanel that you must not hinder the work. You must do this, you must do that, you must make sure that the, the work of the, the temple progressed. I tell you, it backfired on Tatanel. Instead of stopping the work of God, the work progressed with more help from the revenues of the treasuries of the king. How different the outcome this time. The first time, the opposition was because of their sin. So the connection was made, they repented. The second opposition was because of spiritual warfare. And the Lord will deliver. It's easy for the Lord to remove the obstacles, just as it is easy for Him to impede us with His obstacles. So we must make the connection. God is totally sovereign, gloriously redemptive, sometimes puzzling, but His will is always perfect. And uh, so this is really my message. Uh, but I got to explain to you, I told you that I will explain to you why Ezra put the letters that was exchanged between, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, with Artaxerxes in chapter 4. Why? Confuse us. Well, let me give you an explanation. Ezra did not record all the events in the 21 years from BC 536 to 515. That's before the temple was completed. He didn't record all the events there. Ezra focused on the external pressures surrounding the people. Uh, he did not dwell with the sinful condition uh, of the people. The, the reason is this. Ezra wanted to make a point that the temple was a project of God and the temple will be completed despite opposition from God's enemy. The letters that was exchanged was put in chapter 4 for the sole purpose of demonstrating that God is totally sovereign. Now, Haggai focused on the misplaced priorities of the people, the internal attitudes of the people in, his, his, uh, in, in, the, in the prophetic book. Why? To show that it was because of the internal attitudes of the people, their misplaced priorities that they had all these obstacles that God has sent and allowed. So, Ezra highlighted 
God's sovereignty, Haggai affirmed that God is gloriously redemptive. So we have to study Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all together to get the full picture. Now we have a few more sermons in this series, three more sermons in this series. Um, and of course, uh, if maybe if one day we do Nehemiah, you will see that actually there were three revivals. The first revival was the revival of Haggai. Remember, the people went with high expectation. They crashed because of disobedience and Haggai gave them the first revival. And when they returned to the Lord, the temple was built. And then they fell again. 30 years later, 70 years later, they intermarry. And then next week, uh, there will be uh, the sermon that Ezra, they had to come back to bring back the Ezra revival. And when they repented, they sent away their foreign wives. Then the law was restored. Uh, everything was restored. And that was the end of the second revival. Then they fell again. And then other sisters had to oppose them and block the work and stop the work. And then Nehemiah had to be sent. And there was a third revival. And then the war was completed. Gloriously redemptive. Never give up on us. The work of God in our life is continuing, progressing. Always good. Always good, right? And so this is the confidence that we must have. God is treating us as sons. Do not be the Satan. Do not lose heart. If there are troubles, ask God. Reflect. Respond. If you have to endure, endure it. If you have to fight it, fight it. But let's turn back to God. So I ask the musicians to come forward because I just want to, you to maybe just spend five minutes reflecting and I will close in prayer. Uh, I think this is an important time for us now to respond to God because I know maybe some of you uh, are going through a hard time and, and just, you're just wondering why. And I just want you to be discouraged. I want you to respond to God. I want you to know that outside, the outside uh, opposition may, may temporarily slow down the work of God, but nothing can stop us. Nothing can stop us from being the person He has called us to be, from doing what He has purpose for us to do, from fulfilling what He has destined for us. Nothing. Let's pause for a moment so that we can respond to God. Let's just, uh, before we sing this song, let's just pause for a short time. And then, um, then Caleb will lead us in the closing song. Just pause and be quiet for a moment. I should just uh, close in prayer and then we close this, we sing the song. Let's just pray together. Let's just respond to God. Our loving and dear Heavenly Father, we believe that you love us and according to Hebrews chapter 10, discipline is evidence of your love. You alone are wise enough to know exactly what and how much adversity will develop us in Christ's likeness. So we thank you, God, that everything you do or permit to happen is intended for our good. Romans 8, 28. Father, we 
we want to heed your word that says that we should endure all hardship as discipline. Father, we don't want to trivialize hardship or troubles. If there is a connection, God, help us to make that connection between our external circumstances and our internal heart condition. And God, even if we are, uh, if we are unable to make sense of what is happening in our lives, God, help us to hold on to this truth that you are totally sovereign, gloriously redemptive, totally good and loving. Help us, Father, to endure, to patiently endure. And even when our ways, your way seems puzzling, I pray that we will find rest in you. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Some of us may be going through a storm and when days are dark and that, that you appear to be silent and distant, help us to develop the fruit of patience. Give us the faith to hold on until the storm is past. You are in the storm, we believe. We believe that no storm will keep us from fulfilling our destiny. And we pray for the grace to respond in faith. Give us your light, God. Especially a growing understanding and appreciation of, of the height and the, the, the depth and the length of your amazing love. And may the storms in our life that you have allowed in our lives blow us in the direction of, of greater blessing, greater purpose to produce a harvest of righteousness. God, give us your light. Father, shine your light on us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just rise and sing this song. You are forever in my life. You see me through the sea. continue to sing. I'd like to leave the altar open. If you'd like someone to pray with you regarding what you have shared, how God is working in your life. If you'd like someone to pray with you, please feel free to come forward. We'll pray with you as we sing the next sentence.